Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Uh, joining me this morning for the CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation, uh, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, welcome back. Hope you had a nice weekend and looking forward to our conversation today. Right, thank you, Daniel. It's good to be here to start the week. Absolutely. So uh, reflecting on last week, Jason, I know the Fed finally hiked rates by 25 basis points, and the Fed also significantly increased their forecast for the number of hikes likely in 2022 as well as in 2023. You did release a blog on Wednesday, Jason. The title of that blog, Duel of the Mandates, by the way, is now available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO for our clients and our listeners. But in part, it does talk about what the path forward looks like for monetary policy. So based on the changes announced last week by the Fed, Jason, what are the chief investment office's view on what to expect the Fed, in fact, to do? So the 25 basis point hike was almost a certain happen. I think what was surprising was how much they changed their kind of forecast for rate hikes this year and next year. And, and you can see that both in the, the, the stall plot where the individual FOMC members project how many hikes they expect, you know, you know, by the end of this year, by the next year and in 2024, but also more officially in their summer, summer of economic projections. So now they are calling for seven hikes this year and four more in 2023 which would take the Fed funds rate from essentially was around 0% or a little bit above to around 2.8%. So pretty sizable move. Um, at the same time, they also reduced their kind of forecast or their expectation for the long-term neutral rate of, of the Fed funds rate. This is the level at which they you think, you know, when everything is sort of reaches equilibrium long-term, this is the Fed funds rate that sort of balances everything. They moved that down to 2.4% from 2.5%. What that means is that they're basically saying by the end of next year, they expect monetary policy to be in restrictive territory, which if that happens, then that should start to slow growth, have growth below the long-term trend, and ultimately the idea is that you want to get brand inflation under control. Uh, so that, I think it's really it's as much a signaling device as anything else to say this is, you know, we're, we mean business, we're going to raise rates. You know, they, they haven't, they've only done one hike, so we'll see what plays out. In terms of what we expect, I'd say, you know, a hike every meeting with the possibility of a 50 basis point hike in uh, in early May or June is certainly very much you know, in the cards if inflation you know stays high or doesn't look like it's coming down. <clears throat> but I think at, at a minimum, we're looking at a hike per meeting at least through probably until, you know, the, the fall, if not the end of the year. So I think, you know, the Fed seven hikes seems kind of a reasonable expectation. <clears throat> I think what happens beyond that starts to become much more outcome dependent because the Fed could say they want to do, you know, you know, a total of 11 hikes by the end of next year, but that is contingent on their, you know, growth and inflation and uh, employment forecasts playing out. So what's also notable in their adjustment to their economic projections is that despite a significant increase in the number of hikes to the end of next year, and effectively the Fed funds rate has, they've gone, the projection has gone from around 1.65% to, you know, 2.75%, so more than a one percentage point increase. Despite that, their view on where the unemployment rate will be at the end of 2023 hasn't changed. It's still around 3.4%. So basically, they're saying we think the economy can handle it. The, the labor market is so strong and tight, it can you know, withstand these rate hikes. That's a forecast. We'll see actually what materializes as we move into next year. If they start hiking, if there's other factors at play that exogenous to what the Fed is doing, such as higher commodity prices, any sort of further, further supply chain disruptions related to COVID, 
that that path could change. So I'd say the first part of their hiking path is kind of easy, you know, getting to like one to one and a half percent, begin balance sheet reduction. I think thereafter it becomes very much outcome dependent. Um, and we just don't know enough yet how that could play out because there's many different paths, you know, how these things can materialize. When push comes to shove, and this is sort of the point of the blog, you know, the Fed can say they want to focus on inflation right now, but the other part of their mandate is full employment. That is kind of already achieved, you know, but if it's at risk next year, if they keep hiking, do they back off or not? I think that's kind of remains an open question. There's also a lot of questions within the market in terms of, you know, how much do they have to hike to actually get inflation under control? And the consensus is it has to probably be along the lines of what the Fed has indicated, maybe even more so. I think the bigger debate is where is, is how much can the economy handle in terms of higher rates? Um, you know, the, the forecast the Fed has, other economists are that, yes, they can go to 2 2.5%, even close to 3%, and the economy can handle it. It will slow down. You know, but there's also an argument there that the economy is, is you know, kind of already slowing due to various, you know, issues going on with commodity prices, high inflation, and that the Fed can only hike a few times before it's actually going to have to stop. So I think there's, there's definitely more debate in terms of, um, you know, how much the economy can handle. And at some point, the Fed may have to stop, even with inflation high. So... I think the, the near term, the outlook is pretty much set. I think as we move later into this year, that's where it becomes kind of more open to debate and the question of like how far they're willing to go and, and time will tell on that front. So, Jason, just picking out one item you mentioned a few moments ago, one of the factors that you did mention that could influence Fed policy in 2023, that being the labor market and more broadly, the risk that tightening could lead to a recession. So from your vantage point, Jason, what are the risks to that happening? And is there any evidence of the economy already slowing? Well, in terms of the, the second part of your question, the economy slowing, there is some evidence that the economy, at least on the consumer side, is actually kind of picked up from where it was at the start of the year. And that kind of coincides very clearly with the, the Omicron wave, you know, receding significantly to the point where, you know, various restrictive measures that have been put in place, in some cases, two years uh, those are easy. And so I think the economy is the most open it's been, you know, in, this, in the, essentially the past two years is when the pandemic first really began. And what you're seeing is, is sort of a pickup more in spending in areas like services and travel, things that uh, have been impacted most. And so people are shifting away a little bit from consuming physical goods, which they bought a lot when they were locked down. So you're seeing things normalize more in the services space, which is good. That, that, that's a positive. I think that's leading to a little bit of uptick in sort of consumer spending. And it's holding in quite resilient, despite the fact that, you know, inflation has gone up. Now, there are some evidence of high inflation, high gas prices, high food prices impacting lowest income workers. Um, you know, you can just see like they're, they're having to spend more of their money, you know, on credit card data to, to cover your gas expenses, less on your discretionary goods. So there is you know, some impact. I think another question that's, that's a little bit unclear yet is on the more the production and manufacturing side. Things like the ISM index, which had peaked out last year, have been moderating, and different you know, um, you know kind of regional measures of this manufacturing activity have been pretty noisy. Some are you know declining, some are actually holding up quite resilient. The concern is that as you know commodity prices go higher, especially oil and other energy prices, that's going to have an impact on some production. Thus far, we're not really seeing that in the data. When we talk to and hear from you know, CEOs and leaders of consumer-oriented companies, they're not really seeing any sign of consumers pulling back. So right now, there's not really evidence of that. You know, but it is risk, and I think that's something that could you know simply materialize as we go forward. You know, if inflation stays high at the levels we are at for an extended period of time, this is going to impact the consumer. And a very simple way to think about it is that in the tight labor market. The average hourly earnings growth was around five to five and a half percent. It's five point seven in January, it fell to five percent in uh, in February. 
it could rise back again closer to 6% for March when we get the data in early April. But inflation at 7 or 8% means that real wages are actually negative. So people are losing spending power. And along with that continues, ultimately, that's going to weigh on consumer behavior, consumer spending. So if the wage growth stays elevated because the labor market is tight and inflation does moderate, even down to 5% or less by the summer or the fall, then, you know, so real spending power starts to turn positive again. In that case, and that, that provides some sort of resiliency to the economy overall. But that, that's kind of one of the key drivers up later on by later this year or next year could have some material impact. Um, there's always the risk of commodity prices, you know, rising even further. And if that happens, that slows down, you know, you know some production of the economy. It's also going to have an impact on consumer spending. So that is something that is a risk. I think it wouldn't be sort of the base case right now. And also just in terms of the Fed hiking rates, a lot of this is already priced in. So the markets are assuming the Fed's going to hike seven times this year, which means interest rates we think aren't necessarily going to move a whole lot higher from the current levels. They're likely to be more range bound. The economy should be able to handle you know, the two-year at 2%, the 10-year at 2.2%, you know, um, and we don't have to worry even with the Fed hiking those going materially higher in the near term. So that that is less of a risk than people might think you know, because it's already priced into the markets. Jason, just singling out equity market performance for a bit, speaking more near term, now despite the first Fed rate hike as well as the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war, the S&P 500 as well as the NASDAQ 100 last week, they both had their highest weekly gains since November of 2020, and that's coming off what has been a very volatile period for the markets as we've been talking about over the past few weeks. What can we attribute that strong equity market performance to, just given those risk and considerations and a lot of ongoing uncertainty, Jason. I would describe it as more of a technical than a fundamental story. Uh, investors in the preceding month, two months, had been de-risking, had been reducing sort of some of their exposure to risk assets. That's something we did a couple of weeks ago in, in our recommended guidance of going neutral on equities. But you're also seeing sort of you know investors, institutional investors in particular, you know, whether it's hedge funds, the more systematic strategies that rely on leverage, that they invest based on the level of volatility they de-risk significantly. So if we look at their positioning, you know, as a percentile over the past, you know, let's say one to two years, they are at very low levels of risk taking, which means that, you know, any sort of positive news, you know, you might get some buying that takes place in the marketplace. Uh, there was something short covering that was pretty significant uh, to various extents last week. So a lot of de-risking, you know, people have sort of, you know, you know taken off positions. And so, you know, that leaves you in the market sort of more susceptible to sort of like quick moves as it bounces higher. A related fact is on the volatility front that, you know, interest rate volatility has been very high this year as the Fed has made this kind of very hawkish pivot uh, starting late last year and throughout this year. And you can see almost it's culminated with the FOMC meeting last week where they said, here's our path forward for rates. So the market knows you know, what the Fed intends to do, conditional on economic conditions holding out. So it's kind of fully priced for that. These big moves we've seen in, in interest rates across the board should decline uh, and, the, and the volatility should decline. If that happens, the, the interest rate market volatility that filters into other risk assets, including equities and currencies, that should also decline. And we've seen that just in terms of the VIX index, the volatility index for, for equities has come down a little bit. As that declines, I think it also gives investors a little more comfort to be able to put on sort of positions and sort of you know, relever. So again, this is more of a technical story than a fundamental story. But that was, I think, sort of a bit of a reset perhaps last week of you know, the peak in volatility, and now it could start to drift down it's a little bit, and that would encourage some investors to buy, and that sort of supports equities. On a fundamental perspective, there really wasn't anything sort of new um, in terms of the macro outlook. We got you know, confirmation of what the Fed is going to do. The only other thing I'd say that was an incremental positive was in China, there was a senior policy meeting where they basically said, you know, we'll do what it takes to support certainly the financial markets. 
uh, I'm really kind of you know more clearly pivoted that they are focused on both economic stability and sort of financial market stability, uh, and that likely means you know more accommodation and sort of less measures that could be negative for for risk assets for equity markets. In an environment where the Fed and other global central banks are using to see China policy, you know, potentially or the Fed tightening along with other major central banks to see policy in China easing, given the size of its economy, all signal that's an incremental positive. So I think that had some marginal benefit uh, in the new slow last week. Jason, thank you for the clarity around the market drivers. And you did mention positioning a few moments ago. So taking into account the developments you shared with us this morning, what is the asset allocation guidance currently that the chief investment office is advising our clients? So first, it's, you know, the overall view on risk is essentially kind of neutral. We're not making sort of large tactical calls one way or another. Um, and the reason being is that we are seeing still these kind of large swings in, in the marketplace, and it's hard to time. Uh, and I think you're, you're more likely to kind of, you know, either get them wrong or just not get the timing right. So I think sort of, you know, maintaining a, you know, an allocation that's kind of towards your long-term you know, benchmark, whether you're, you know, a moderate investor or more aggressive investor, I think that still is, is the right call. Um, in terms of, you know, what we likely still lean more towards value at stocks within the U.S., um, you know, given that they are, you know, would benefit from higher interest rates as we've seen or higher commodity prices. So we lean in that direction. But the move in rates, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, is probably largely done. So the, or at least for now, the biggest move is probably done before we need some sort of catalyst lead this year to suggest rates should go higher because either additional Fed tightening. So interest rates, fixed income in general, that it looked underwhelming and sort of actually unattractive is now becoming a little bit more interesting because you can actually get some yield. And that applies not only to, you know, kind of safer treasuries, but also other parts of the credit space, uh, you know, like investment grade corporate credit that has seen spreads widen. So fixed income is now actually offering a little bit of an alternative to, to equities. Um, not a screaming buy by any stretch, but definitely a little bit more intriguing. Uh, commodities is still something that we like for both fundamental reasons, but also kind of hedging reasons. If you just look at the price of oil, uh, it shot up to around $130 a barrel, if you measure by Brent. About two weeks ago, pulled back, so by the middle or early last week, it was down to around $100, but we're seeing it kind of grind higher, and this morning it's around $110. The kind of overshoot was probably too high on the upside. The, you know, the pullback was probably too far. The fundamental story does appear to be that you know supply constraints are, are real, demand will be solid, and prices probably have to go higher. So we still like that for fundamental reasons. But of course, if there's any sort of further escalation in the situation with Russia and Ukraine that causes greater dis- supply disruptions, oil prices could go even higher. So we still like that as a as a hedge at this moment. The other thing I think just on equities in general, while we wouldn't go outright defensive, I think you know, given that we don't think the cycle is going to end anytime soon, positioning for more kind of higher quality kind of across you know the different types of strategies, where the, you know growth and value still remains attractive um, to give you sort of a little bit more protection in, in the event of some uh, you know risk off events. So big picture, that's kind of what we're thinking. Um, and I'll stop there and pass it back to you, Dan. Jason, as always, thank you for dropping by the podcast on a Monday morning to tee up the week. Really productive conversation and appreciate the clarity around guidance when it comes to asset allocation. Thank you very much for joining us, Jason, and wish you a nice week ahead. Thank you, Dan. Have a great week. We've been joined by Jason Dreho, the head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com 
forward slash CIO, including the blog which Jason had been making reference to during our conversation today, uh, that being Duel of the Mandates, which again, now available on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Though for clients of UBS, simply reach out to your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.